Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. The Guardian. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Books podcast with me, Sean Kane. On this week's show, we're going way, way back in time to the days of Homer's Iliad and Oedipal Myth, all the while remaining very firmly in contemporary times. Later on, Claire will be talking to Daisy Johnson, who is nominated for the Man Booker Prize this year for her debut novel, Everything Under, a reimagining of Sophocles in modern Britain. And Michael Hughes, whose new novel Country sees Homer's Iliad transported to Northern Ireland during the Troubles. But first of all, Claire is here, and we are also joined by The Guardian's chief culture writer and the generally wonderful Charlotte Higgins. Hello. Hello. Hello, It's a bit of a reunion for us, because Charlotte and I were most recently together at the Edinburgh Festival. Yes, and I feel like I kind of haven't seen you for a while as well, Claire. We've been out and about, haven't we, Charlotte? We've been schmoozing. We have. You've been schmoozing. (laughs) I thought the last time I saw you was at our mutual Italian lesson. Oh, I wasn't going to mention that, but that was just a bit too much information. (laughs) I'm not in Italian club. I'm not that cool. (laughs) Well, Charlotte, let's talk about coincidence and whether it is coincidence. Um, But at the moment, we've got Pat Barker's The Silence of the Girls, which is a retelling of Iliad. Michael Hughes' Country, which again we mentioned before is Iliad, Daisy Johnson's Everything Under, which is Oedipus, Camilla Shamsie's Home Fire, which is a reimagining of Sophocles' Antigone, and The House of Names by Comtoy Bean last year, which riffed on Aeschylus and Euripides. So what's going on? Why are we all sort of going back to classical myth to write our contemporary novels? I know, it's amazing, isn't it? Every time I hear of a new one, I think... Gosh, isn't this over yet? You know, people still want to carry on doing this. I keep thinking it's reached peak Greek myth novelization, and then it and then it hasn't. Which which I'm delighted about because, I mean, you you could also add in there Madeline Miller's novel Circe, Zachary Mason's latest book Metamorphica, Natalie Haynes's novel Children of Jocasta. It's all go. My personal theory is that these old stories, uh, which are very extreme tell extraordinarily and profoundly kind of tragic stories about the effects of war or the extreme kind of collapse of a, of a prosperous life, which is what happens to Oedipus. You know, he's, he's the sort of great king, the great beloved and clever king whose life is completely reversed by the fact that he in the past unknowingly committed a terrible crime. The kind of extremity of these kind of stories seems to be right for our extreme times and perhaps instead of confronting our extreme times directly we want to do it via these old stories which in fact is what the Greeks of classical Athens were doing when they wrote those great tragedies because they were using the stories of the past in a sense the great myths of the past to confront their own contemporary concerns. One of the things that's really interesting about this is where the fiction writers are embracing tragedy then you have non-fiction writers like Edith Hall who you chaired memorably at Hay who are confronting the wisdom of the ancients and sort of almost in a sort of self-help way or at least that's how it was received by the audiences at Hay. <laughs> Edith's book is fabulous, I have to say. It's a really humane and very accessible reading of Aristotle. And I say that, I mean, I studied classics, but I, I am a non-Aristotelian. I didn't study the Nicomachean ethics or anything like that at university. Aristotle was a bit of a closed book to me. But Edith, who's an incredibly passionate thinker, if you can, I think you can be a passionate thinker, she is incredibly attached to the thinking of Aristotle and and makes this very compelling case in her book Aristotle's Way about how Aristotle can 
help us lead our lives. I mean, Aristotle is all about the formation of character, what it means to lead a good life, how a sense of fulfilment in our work and in our friendship and relationships leads us to a happy life. And she she spoke about that uh, at Hay, you know, with, with such kind of vigour. She had everybody eating out of her I hands. I mean, this is a thousand people in the middle of the day, in a field in the middle of Wales, it who was, came to hear un- Aristotle. It was unbelievable. She had been programmed in a, in a small venue at Hay, and we hadn't seen any of the signs that said, this event is now taking place in an absolutely humongous tent, the like of which you've never seen before. So we were kind of walked around, moving towards this enormous tent, and we looked at each other and swore quietly under our breath. We couldn't believe that we were going to have to speak to all these people in this vast space. Anyway, after a moment, she was a little bit nervous backstage, but Mike, when she went on, she was just in full flow. She was absolutely fantastic. And yeah, I still can't quite unpick why a thousand people in, on the Welsh-English border were so desperate to hear about Aristotle, but they were, and it was great. <laughs> I mean, is it... Is it, does it sort of tie back to what you were saying before about the classical myths and why they're being reimagined again and again at the moment? Is it because we need a bit of distance? We are wondering how to live our lives, aren't we? I mean, everything is in flux. I mean, maybe, maybe it's a not dissimilar thing from Noah Yuval Harari or something. We want to grasp onto these sources of, of wisdom. I think we, we are maybe generally... A lot of us are feeling a little bit lost and grasping onto these guides seems good for the moment. Interesting that you talk about being a little bit lost because this is something that applies to the festivals themselves. I think that there's a sense that festivals, book festivals, there are so many of them all the way around the world that they are now trying to find the next big thing. And one of those is challenging what what the structure of events is. It's not just necessarily two people talking to each other. And this was instanced in your event for your own book, Charlotte, which was... Yeah, talking about being a little bit lost. Being a little bit lost. Lost in the labyrinth. That was a good, good segue, wasn't it? <laughs> um, which is about mazes. And it's another coincidence because there are three books about mazes that are uh, coming out in the next there are I've discovered a third I know you think you only know two <laughs> which really? is yours Red Thread and Henry Elliot's Follow the Thread this thread but there is also the Maze Labyrinthine Compendium coming out in, in September which I just popped into my inbox as it happened <laughs> this week Crikey! <laughs> and your event was was amazing because <laughs> there you go. There's another. <laughs> I can't oh, stop God. it. I, I've come. I've Claire. come back from Edinburgh a bit hyper. Dad jokes. <laughs> <laughs> because they didn't just talk to you about mazes, but they wrapped you in red thread, didn't they? Ah, oh, well, that was a bit different. I I, I was wrapped in red thread for um, a photo shoot with um, a fantastic photographer who who takes author pictures at Edinburgh called Chris Close and. I've known Chris for some years just because I've been reporting and writing about Edinburgh and I've been a guest selector at the Edinburgh Festival. I've been an author at the Edinburgh Festival and a chair at the Edinburgh Festival, a little bit part of the furniture. Somehow, therefore, trusted Chris (laughs) to take my photograph. Uh, He does get people doing sort of wonderfully mad things for his pictures. My book's called Red Thread, so I said, why don't we... When he said he wanted to take my picture, I said, why don't we... um, why don't we do something with a red ball of wool? So I went to the pound shop and bought a, a ball of wool, red wool, thinking that Chris would do something mildly tasteful with it. But in fact, what he did was wrap <laughs> my face in it so that I couldn't speak. Thanks, Chris. And I looked like, kind of like Lee Bowery. It was slightly pervy, actually, in a peculiar way. Anyway, he wrapped, he wrapped my face in it and took these amazing pictures. And I was the object of pity and derision by all who passed by this photo shoot. So that that was a slightly different thing. But in the event that I did, I was chaired by the festival director, Nick Barley, and he had this brilliant idea, although a slightly high-wire idea, that we should try and infuse something slightly labyrinthine into the event. He asked one of his colleagues, Julie Amphlett, who's the operations manager at Hay, to knit a red hat. And into the red knitted hat, we put words, or he put words, and they were words that related to my book. So they were things like Crete and maze and web and fiction, or phrases like dead end. And I had to pick out words from the hat and talk about them just in the order that they came. And every time I picked out dead end, that was an audience question. 
<laughs> I mean, it's interesting because Nick's the festival director, so I think he is, or he himself is always looking for ways to think about how can we make it slightly different from someone coming on to talk about their book or someone talking to someone else about their book. It was great fun, actually. It, it really was. It was really nice. Well, speaking of great fun, I've been toiling away in the office, not going to Edinburgh, while the two of you have been larking about at the Edinburgh Book Festival this year. I haven't been able to go at all, and I'm incredibly bitter about it. I'm not going to hide it. Um, <laughs> I know. Well, what did you guys see? I'm really jealous. Well, I only I just paid a lightning visit over over one weekend, and I thought, what can I do that's coherent? Because the thing is, you arrive in these festivals, and it takes a bit of time to pick up the buzz, and um, in three days, you it's just very difficult to know what's going to be exciting. So I decided to look at a strand called Playing With Books. And there were seven shows altogether, three of them um, in, in partnership with the Lyceum Theatre, um, where they were actually reinventing for the stage works of fiction. And I actually only saw one of those, that particular strand, that was Ali Smith's How To Be Both, which I have to say was I found absolutely thrilling. Really? No, they, they, they supposedly had three days of rehearsal. They did have three. They weren't making it up. They had three they, days of they'd rehearsal. Had, they'd had more time to do some writing and preparation, but they had rehearsed it only for three days. Wow. And it was extraordinary in that sense. With keyboardists playing the Renaissance artist, who is the centre of one section, and then two act- actors playing the mother and daughter. It's just such an amazing thing to do for a book, a completely different way of, of presenting literature, uh, but very expensive. So it's not really, it's not scalable. That's the problem, is it? If you have to play, pay for for rehearsal time for three actors plus two writers. And the whole point about literary festivals and I suspect part of the reason for their success is the talking heads format is incredibly economic mm. in this case it's a serendipitous thing because it's 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 a collaboration between the Edinburgh Book Festival and the Lyceum Theatre um, so the presiding genius um, aside from Nick Barley the book festival director is David Gregg the artistic director of the Lyceum which is just around the corner so there's this nice sort of confluence of different disciplines essentially how to be both worked exceptionally well and and it's possible that they will take that forward and move towards making a full production one of the things that was really nice about it is that the bothness of ali smith's novel is particularly suited to the stage because there is this idea of bothness you know in performance you know you're both an actor you're both yourself and you are taking on the part you're becoming somebody else and that's of course that's just absolutely rooted in in the very origins of theatre so it worked you know that central metaphor for me kind of made the whole thing just perfect you know it was just absolutely ready to move to the stage and I think Ali Smith was uh, I was sitting with her um at the back of the venue and she was just she was so excited mm. uh, she, she thought it was terrific it was a bit of um, an Ali Smith year, wasn't it? Because she also made an appearance with Nicola Sturgeon being interviewed by the First Minister of Scotland. That's quite something. Yeah, well, what was quite something about it was that Nicola Sturgeon was very good at it. <laughs> I mean, you can tell when somebody's just been briefed so that they can just sort of get themselves through the next hour. No, I mean, Nicola Sturgeon clearly is a reader and she has she's appeared with um, Val McDermott and other writers before now at the festival she was terribly good at it and she did say rather brilliantly that she thought it should be compulsory for all political leaders to read fiction as opposed to non-fiction because of the extra I suppose because of the the extra truthfulness one might suggest of fiction you know it's not just about the world it's of the world it speaks to a deeper truth often than than mere reportage and Ali Smith was also very impressive as she very much tends to be and, and she was yet even more impressive uh, giving a lecture about Muriel Spark to celebrate the centenary of Muriel Spark's birth in Edinburgh. Um, she's sort of this, like almost like a sort of the laureate of, of Scotland, isn't she, Muriel Spark? She's emerging as. I'm rightly so. I've been waiting for this. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm an absolute, you know, absolutely paid up devotee of Muriel Spark. I read Loitering with Intent at least twice a year. It's the nearest I've got to a Bible. I was um, about to uh, say, which, which, which Muriel Spark would you recommend to someone that's coming to her for the first time? Uh-huh. But I guess that might be your answer. Well, my niece, my 17-year-old niece, picked up The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie, which is a good place to start. And then I gave her, I actually gave her Girls of Slender Means and um, I think I gave her possibly A Far Cry from Kensington. I'm going to work her up to 
loitering with intent. Until she's at the point where she's reading it a couple of times a year. <laughs> and another, another of the Muriel Spark things this year was this staged reading of, of her unperformed play, Doctors of Philosophy, which you wrote about before it happened and also were at. Yes, because in the spirit of Muriel Spark completism, I had found that play on a well-known second-hand books platform (laughs) (laughs) last year because I was curious I was just rereading my uh, Martin Stanard's biography of Spark and realized that I hadn't read this play and I've read most of Muriel Spark so I was very excited to read it and I'm still not absolutely convinced even by the terrific read-through that it's a hugely successful play but it is absolutely fascinating it has five strong female characters three male characters all of whom are called charlie it's a kind of semi-satire on the intellectual class of 1962 it's called doctors of philosophy it's set among this group of people most of whom have phds but the most sparky in both senses character is the cleaning lady who's just called mrs s and her job she tells someone at some point is polishing reality so I think she is a little bit of a she is a bit of a Mrs Spark because Mrs Spark herself did not go to university um, nor yet had a PhD so you weren't convinced by it Claire no I wasn't but I mean I I absolutely take the point that it's a a really interesting thing and there was a very large audience and they were very enthusiastic because I think that there are probably a lot of Muriel Spark completists in Edinburgh and (laughs) more power to their elbow but personally I didn't find that was as exciting um, because it was just a second rate play which for me which was being done in rehearsed reading which didn't get the speed of of that they would have had had they had a bit more time and as you pointed out to me which I'd completely missed Charlotte there is a sort of a whole shtick going on about the first part of it being with scenery and the second part without scenery which well that's kind of hard to convey in a a, a rehearsed (laughs) reading without any scenery at all anyway but the thing that I loved almost most of all was a complete surprise which was an interactive sort of investigation and it was at um, stage at the Central Library where this um, Glasgow theatre company called Visible Fictions heard staged a sort of detective trail around the library shelves um, where you had to investigate the disappearance, the mysterious disappearance of a librarian. Mm, and, that sounds uh, cool. Oh, it's so cool. You start off, again, it sort of relates a little bit to all these mazes and things. You start off with a code and then you follow the Dewey codes um, around the library and you find books which give you new codes and it gives you st- journeys which are also stories so there's one story which is about zombies one story is about um code breaking and other stories about the occult in an hour you have to come out with what happened to this disappeared librarian and i have to say it's going to be touring around all the schools of secondary schools of scotland this year and i just wish it would come down here because i would definitely want to go and have another go at solving the crime better i have to say oh we've got to get it down yeah, I, I, so, so I missed this and i'm so stupid we have to we have to lobby for it to come down south. well i think anybody everybody should lobby lobby for it and if, if you want to do so it's called the hidden and it's by visible fictions so get put get your request in now if you're <laughs> a school in england that's awesome finding your perfect home was hard but thanks to burrow furnishing it has never been easier Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. You're listening to The Guardian Books Podcast. Staying on classics of a different kind, so moving away from Ali Smith and and Muriel Spark, we are now going to hear from Daisy Johnson and Michael Hughes talking about their novels. And we're starting with Daisy explaining her book, Everything Under. Everything Under is set primarily um, on the canals around Oxford. And it is about a young woman who had a very troubled childhood. She had a very difficult mother and she begins a journey to find her mother and in doing so begins to remember what happened on the river when she was a child. It is a retelling of the Oedipus narrative with lots of 
gender swapping um, and strange, threatening creatures. And yes, we say it's the Oedipus narrative, but actually you don't declare that. And you, you have to get quite far through the novel before you begin to see exactly what's happening. And I just wondered what point you made that decision. I mean, the difficulty of writing a novel based on a well-known story is we know the ending. <laughs> and I think in the Oedipus narrative, the ending, you know, there's quite a lot of twists in there. We thought long and hard about whether, you know, does it change the reading experience to know beforehand. And I think people disagree on this, but I quite like knowing because I think when I was reading Country, Michael's Country, looking for all the clues was one of the things I enjoy most about reading retellings, being like, oh, this is this and this is that. And yeah. Yeah. Well, the young woman who you mentioned is called Gretel. Yes. Um, let's have a little bit of her. It's not all in one voice. You have different sections, some, some are third person, some are first, but Gretel very much commands her own narrative. Yes. So this is the beginning. Uh, there's a brief prologue and then I'll go into the first chapter. The places we are born come back. They disguise themselves as migraines, stomach aches, insomnia. They are the way we sometimes wake falling, fumbling for the bedside lamp, certain everything we've built has gone in the night. We become strangers to the places we are born. They would not recognise us, but we will always recognise them. They are married to us. They are bred into us. If we were turned inside out, there would be maps cut into the wrong side of our skin, just so we could find our way back. Except, cut wrong side into my skin are not canals and train tracks and a boat, but always you. The Cottage It is hard even now to know where to start. For you, memory is not a line, but a series of baffling circles, drawing in and then receding. At times, I come close to violence. If you were the woman you were 16 years ago, I think I could do it, beat the truth clean out of you. Now it is not possible. You are too old to beat anything out of. The memories flash like broken wine glasses in the dark and then are gone. There is a degeneration at work. You forget where you have left your shoes when they are on your feet. You look at me five or six times a day and ask who I am or tell me to get out, get out. You want to know how you got here, in my house. I tell you over and over. You forget your name or where the bathroom is. I start keeping clean underwear in the kitchen drawer with the cutlery. When I open the fridge, my laptop is in there, the phone, the television remote. You shout for me in the middle of the night, and when I come running, you ask me what I'm doing there. You are not Gretel, you say. My daughter Gretel was wild and beautiful. You are not her. Some mornings, you know exactly who we both are. You get out as many kitchen implements as you can fit on the counter and cook great breakfast feasts, four cloves of garlic and everything, as much cheese as possible. You order me around my own kitchen, tell me to do the washing up or clean the windows for God's sake. The decay comes on these days slowly. You forget to pan on the stove and burn the pancakes. The sink overflows onto the floor. A word becomes trapped in your mouth and you hack at it, trying and failing to spit it out. I run the bath for you and we go hand in hand up the stairs. These are small moments of peace, almost unbearable. If I really cared about you, I would put you in a home for your own good. Floral curtains, meals at the same time every day, others of your kind. Old people are a species all of their own. If I really still loved you, I would have left you where you were, not carted you here where the days are so short they are barely worth talking about, and where we endlessly excavate, exhume what should remain buried. Occasionally we find those old words sneaking back in and we are undone by them. It's as if nothing has ever changed, as if time doesn't mean a jot. We have gone back, and I am 13 years old, and you are my awful, wonderful, terrifying mother. We live on a boat on the river, and we have words that no one else does. We have a whole language all our own. You tell me that you can hear the water effing along. I answer that we are far from any river, but that sometimes I hear it too. You tell me you need me to leave, you need some sheesh time. I tell you that you are a harpy doodle, and you grow enraged or laugh so hard you cry. One night I wake and you are screaming and screaming. I skid along the corridor, knock your door open, put on the light. You are sitting up in the narrow spare bed with the sheets pulled to your chin and your mouth open, weeping. What is it? What's wrong? You look at me. The bonac is here, you say, and for a moment, because it is night and I am only just awake, I feel a rise of sickening panic. I shake it away open the wardrobe and show you the empty inside, help you out of bed so we can crouch together and look beneath, stand at the window and peer out into the black. There's nothing there. You have to sleep now. 
It's here, you say, the Bonac is here. So what is the Bonac? Will you, <laughs> you, you perhaps need to explain that. <laughs> I don't want to give too much away for people who are going to read the book, but so the Bonac is something that when Gretel was a child living on the river with her mother, began swimming upstream along the river towards them. Um, and the closer it get, the more pets went missing and children start going missing. And part of Gretel's journey throughout the book is trying to remember exactly what this Bonac is um, and what it represents for her. So one of the things that I think you get from that chapter is how it's very strange, but it's also very familiar. So so you're talking about, in a way, you're talking about a, an Alzheimer's story. But you're also talking about the languages that mothers and daughters speak together and the languages that families develop over, over a lifetime together and the fear of that all s- slipping away. Yes, that's something I started being really interested in when I was, uh, when I was writing short stories is this idea of making the familiar strange And I think that's something that happens when you know someone as well as you know your family is that you have these routines and these strange rituals and they become so familiar, they almost become otherworldly. And that's something I really wanted to explore, you know, something as simple as a mother-daughter relationship kind of spinning off into strangeness. Mm. I really resonated incredibly strongly with that because I grew up in Africa and um, we used to have this word vulching. I vulch for it. And I once wrote it in an application for a job and I was absolutely, they made an absolute mockery <laughs> of me saying it can't exist. You can't write vulching. What does it mean? It doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, if you've ever lived in a place with vultures, you know exactly what vultures vulching means. And there's, there's a lot of river language in this novel, isn't there? Which is because that's very much the location that they share together. Yes, and I really wanted to explore this idea of... Um, so they come up with this language, just as you seem to do when you were younger. And But it's a language that no one else in the world can understand. So when Gretel grows up and goes to school, she realises that by creating this language for her, her mother has ultimately ostracised her from the rest of the world. And I really wanted to explore this idea that language you know, can change our personality. I think the language that she uses when she's a child makes her a loner, makes her a recluse. Mm-hmm. There's other figures apart from Sarah and the mother who is the mother and and Gretel. There is a a mysterious boy girl (laughs) who, and I was thinking about this, how how one talks about it without spoiling the plot. And Mm. then I was wondering whether one would spoil the plot. (laughs) Yes, there is another character in Gretel's childhood, a boy, I think, who she thinks is a boy, um, who comes one day walking walking into the place that their boat is moored. And her childhood is all tangled up with this idea of her growing sexuality, which is enmeshed with this character who turns up and who her mother has a slightly weird relationship with. And a lot of the novel is about finding out who this character is. And part of the novel, the third thread of the novel, is actually from their point of view. And I I enjoyed writing that, but I did. So it's interesting you say from their point of view. So as far as you're concerned, there are they. I think... It's interesting because there is quite a lot of transgender ideas in this book. For Marcus, this character, he, they, I think, is a character who wouldn't understand our contemporary language, you know, the very careful pronouns that we use now. It is a girl to begin with who then, I think, to protect themselves, becomes a boy in a sort of Shakespearean way, I imagine. But I think, and I don't, I think maybe they are between genders, but I don't know what pronoun they would use. I'm struggling to talk about them. <laughs> yeah, no, it's really, it's really interesting yeah. because they, they are a very complicated mm. composition. I mean, I've thought of Orlando in a way when, yes, when I, that's nice. when I, when, when I um, encountered them. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I want to ask you a bit about the structure because it mm-hmm. is very, very, very strongly structured. It's yeah. like the structure is another voice of the novel. Um, but it's little little um, sections, very tight sections with very different vocabularies, very different, you know, one, some are third person, some are first person. How did you come up with that? Through endless redrafting. So it took about four years to write this book with the first draft take being very, very quick. And then I really struggled to find, I knew that I wanted it to be a retelling of the Oedipus book and I didn't know who was the best character to carry the story. Um, so originally it was a lot more from the mother's point of view Um, And then I kept trying and moving around. And the section that I read from to begin with is from Gretel's point of view, but she's addressing her mother. And for me, that had to be that way because the mother is such a pivotal character in the book. You know, she's for Gretel. She is kind of everything. She's the way she made, made her the way she is. So I think she had to address her mother. And then a lot of the rest of the book is in other voices, but narrated by Gretel. So that even though it seems as if other characters might be speaking, actually it's Gretel 
narrating the story to to us I think in the to the best of her ability you know she's um, narrating things that she wasn't even there for and I think I also really wanted it so it's obviously quite a literary book I but I wanted it to have pace it's a story about her trying to find out something which is I think is why it's in quite small sections which I hope you move through quite fast I think the second reason is that so as you said it's also about Alzheimer's um, about what happens when you get older um, and also about how sometimes we forget things to protect ourselves. So I wanted, as the reader is reading, I wanted them to have have this sense of slight disorientation, of sort of fragments of images coming together, which I think is how the mother who has Alzheimer's is is perceiving the world. You said that it took you four years to write. You published your first book. This is actually not your first book. It's your first novel. That's right. So you published Fen, which is a collection of short stories in 2016. So were you writing this before you, were write, you, you published Fen? So I had the idea for this before and then did a couple of drafts and concentrated more on Fen and then kept going back to this and kept despairing about this and crying about it. So yeah, it was sort of happening at the same time. And then after Fen was published, I was really concentrating just on this and redrafting this. Right, now I'm going to park you and I'm going to turn to Michael, who's been waiting very patiently in front of his microphone. Michael, you have used the Iliad. You signal it in a more direct way by, for example, having a character called Achill. No prizes for guessing who that is. Absolutely, Achilles. And that was one of the moments when the the initial uh, idea I had really really came to life when I, I lighted on Ackle, which is an island off, off the west coast of, of Ireland, as, as a possible use of it, as a nickname for that character to use as, a, as an equivalent. Oh, that's a brilliant coincidence, isn't it? There, there were a couple of moments like that where things just clicked into place, stories I heard that resembled incidents in the Iliad. When you, you know, at the, at, To begin with, this was just a notion, an idea, and it began to solidify as these various bits and pieces came to light and, and began to feel like, yes, this, this could actually work. Mm. Now, again, it's a very strongly voiced novel. You're an actor, That's but right. you're, you're actually called Michael Colgan. That's your acting name. Yes, I use a different name as an actor. When you join the Actors' Union Equity, you're not allowed to use a name that's already been registered. And unfortunately, someone's already registered the name Michael Hughes. Yeah, so I imagine I, that there might be some pressure on that name. <laughs> Well, <laughs> in acting circles, <laughs> could be, could be. So, so I had yeah. to take another family name, which 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 Colgan was one, and it, it helps to separate your post, if nothing else. Yeah, I was wondering whether it started, it helped you to keep your head in two different places, because being an actor when you're up there and doing other people's work, and being a writer when you're sitting yeah. in your study doing your your own writing, are two very different activities. They are indeed, and and the reason I like to one one reason I like to keep them going in parallel is because acting is very very social. You're constantly thrown together with new people, constantly in in new places, and Writing, apart from this side of it, which is very nice when you pop your head up out of your out of your burrow every couple of years with a new book, is very very solitary. You're carrying this this whole world around just in your head. At least I am because I, I I don't really like people to read things until they're quite far down the line. Now I've been dying to ask you to read. Obviously, um, sure. <laughs> I'm very interested to see what you make of it because it is it is something that speaks with a very strong accent. And um, I was very keen. I'm I'm not a. I should say I'm not a, a classical scholar of any kind. But I was very taken with the idea that the Iliad would initially have been received orally by its audience. It would have been read or spoken, recited aloud. And I was very keen to preserve that sense of orality and keep the sense of a story being told aloud in the voice I chose for the, for the novel. So I'll read it just a bit from the very beginning, which opens it for those of you who, who know the Iliad in a very familiar way. Fury, pure fury. The blood was up, lost the head completely. Akel, the man from the West the best sniper the IRA ever seen. All called him Ackle, but his name was plain Liam O'Brien. After the Da, big Liam O'Brien, who came out of Ackle Island and bore the name before him. So the son was called Ackle in his turn, though he was born and reared in Castle Bar, and he'd never set foot in the place, for the Da always said it was a fearful hole. What was the start of it? The whole wrecking match that sent so many strong souls roaring down to hell, dogs chewing up the guts ground into the road, birds pecking at the splattered bits of their brains. The way London wanted it to go. The way it always is. Here's what. Pig and Ackle fell out. The O.C. and the Trigger Man. Bad, bad news. And whose fault was that? Here's who. One particular prod farmer from up the country, a man all knew as Crisis Cunningham who owned the land where they were prepping the job, that Pig had been renting since the ceasefire was called. Ninety-six this was, the year just turned. The farmer motored down to get back his daughter, 
for the girl had disgraced him by running away and flinging herself at Pig, after he called in to settle his account the week before. She was shacked up now at his place, doing his washing, cooking his dinner, whatever else. So this man Cunningham sent word to Pig and his brother Dog, and he was told to come on down to the farm for a wee chat. The whole squad gathered to hear, round the side of the barn, ducked in under the jut of the roof in case a chopper went over, stamping away the cold, puffing into their hands. The old man said his piece, laid it all out. The whole recitation of his credentials and bona fides. No interest in politics of any colour or creed. You pays your money and no questions asked. But he knew better than to frig around with lads the like of them. He hadn't come empty-handed, no sir. A bag full of cash for pig, big bundles of sterling twenties, English notes. The keys to his own merc. The promise of a prize bull, once the next season was done, worth ten or twelve grand itself. Then it started. The man begged, he plain begged for the young one back, weeping and whining, down on his knees in the wet dung of the yard. She's hardly fourteen, the light of my life. Please don't touch her, big man, not yet a while. Give her a couple more years to be a wee girl. I buried her mother and my mother both this past year. The heart is already tore out of me. I can't stand losing the last bit of joy I have. Nobody knew where to look. It would scunder you to see a grown man like yon choking on his sobs and snotters. They all nudged other, and the mother went round. Go on there, pig. Let the girl go back home with her da, and we'll have no more said about it. Not pig. He laughed his big, dirty laugh right in the poor man's face. Away and shite. I take no orders from muck, savage, orange bastards. The girl stays where she is, and she'll be doing my ironing, and plenty besides till her pubes turn grey if I want her to. Now get the fuck out of this before you're carried out. He drew his short, snapped off the safety. And away the old man skedaddled, hoofing it down the back lane at a fair old lick. But the minute he got in home, he lifted the phone to a certain individual. You know I take no sides, he says, and I never ask for nothing. But family is family, and I bring in the vote for you here in the town land every election. So this one time, there's a wee favour you can maybe do for me. So chilling, isn't it? It's, I mean, that, that it just gets that treachery. That, that sort of big concept of treachery, which ex- goes all the way through a classical epic. But. Absolutely. And I think what, what really struck me as I, as I read my way into the Iliad and got to grips with what that story was, was really how local it is, how small these groups of characters were. And again, that was something that inspired me or gave me permission to borrow it from my story. Northern Ireland's a very local place. People do know each other. Local allegiances are very important. Loyalty, betrayal, honour, those things are still very important. Those uh, those emotions we see to the fore in the in the, in the classical myths. So now it's set in 1996. Yeah. Why that particular year? Because I always think of 1997 as the year when the ceasefire the, the ceasefire happened. But yes, there was a first ceasefire, which was in 1994 and lasted about 18 months. It broke with the Canary Wharf bomb in in I think it was February 1996. What I wanted to do again. Jumping from the from the model of the Iliad, I, I started out with the idea to write about the Northern Ireland conflict, and I'd been trying to write about that for quite a long time. When I decided to do it in this way, one of the reasons that felt appropriate is because you had two sides at the end of a long conflict, feeling exhausted, looking for a way out. But if I set it entirely in ceasefire times, the one part of the the conflict that I'd be dodging is the violence, and that was the real thing I wanted to write about, that I felt... Uh, was lacking in the attempts I'd made before. I really wanted, to, for myself as much as for, for any reader or anything else, to try to think my way inside the people who are actually involved in the conflict. So for that to be the case, there had to be some fighting. You grew up in Armagh, County Armagh. I grew up in County Armagh. Which is a border, yeah, it's a, a border it's county. A border county, and I grew up towards the south of it in a town called Cady, which is about five miles from the border. So this is sort of actually prime IRA country. Just where I grew up uh, uh, is is fairly quiet and would have been more of a moderate nationalist town, but you're certainly in the midst of that and on the edge of, of the area known as South Armagh, which is absolutely prime Republican heartland, yes. Um, and did you see this? Did you? I mean, obviously it was in your childhood, all this, this stuff. It was, I was born in 1972, which was 
uh, often cited as the worst year of the, of the of the troubles of the conflict. And I did. I grew up with it completely normal. At the top of the street I, I grew up in was a huge helicopter base. Uh, there were army patrols up and down the street all the time. You couldn't drive the car for more than a few minutes without being stopped and, and have your details taken and so on. And that was completely normal to me in my childhood. It was only when I grew up and moved away. That that because I did m- I moved to England to, to go to university in the early nineties before the ceasefire. So that was really, although obviously I knew life wasn't like that beyond. That was my first taste of of living in in in, in the way the rest of. Uh, of, of Britain and Europe were used to. Mm. Your use of names interests me because as well as Akil and Pig and Dog and <laughs> yeah. they all have these wonderful names. Is that something that you've observed or is that just something you decided to invent? I think the last time I lived in Northern Ireland was really a, a sixth form and, and in my school nicknames were a very big thing both for people, fellow students and also for the teachers. Uh, sometimes they'd be family nicknames, sometimes they'd be come up with a... a because of some incident that had happened or, 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 or something, sometimes they were even done to be the opposite of what the person represented, just as a sort of extra wind-up. And I know in the Iliad and in classical literature, these characters often have appellations, fleet-footed Achilles, flashing-eyed Athene. They, they have these um, these extra little tags put onto their names, and I thought that was an, a, a nice correspondence I could play with as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to get back to the violence, mm-hmm. um, because it's interesting because it's like hand-to-hand violence. Even... When there are guns involved, it's very close quarters. So it's not like sort of somebody shooting down a street. It's somebody shooting somebody they know or kneecapping somebody. <laughs> yeah, that's right. For, for those who haven't read the Iliad, it is, it, I mean, it's wall-to-wall fighting. It's like a stupid 80s action movie. They're just people people getting cut down left, right and centre with incredibly gory deaths all around. And that doesn't fit in the Northern Ireland context, those... those uh, Killings were often done at a distance, whether with bombs or sniper rifles. Occasionally, people would walk right up to people and shoot them or kneecap them, as they say. To me, there's nothing romantic in the violence. But but the central one of the central ideas I wanted to explore was the fact that for these people, there is what they're doing is is squalid and is nasty and is cruel and is horrible by any standards. But they think it's worthwhile. They think it's appropriate. Why? How do they get to that point? How do they find any romance, glamour, honour in those sorts of activities? That's really what I'm trying to dig into in this book. Well, part of it is, uh, and, and as you get get through the book, you you sort of teasing away at this idea of some sort of uh, of um, honour and um, nobility as being part of what they are all reaching for and somehow having a feeling that by sacrificing themselves they may be saving future generations from what they're going through you see to me i i'm a i'm by instinct a pacifist i'm not sure if i am philosophically or or, or in, in practice but but I, i'm i'm not a violent person i i i've no interest and i know when i was growing up in northern ireland i absolutely despised the violence and those involved in it completely i had no interest in any of that I, I withdrew myself as much as possible from that what i've had to do as i've got older is try to understand how this was going along how it is that people whether it's ancient greece mythological ancient Greece where these characters uh, uh, Agamemnon, Menelaus feel themselves as full of honour and, and, and full of glory for going out and chopping people to bits with big swords in, a, in a, as I say, a completely squalid, cruel way. Is, is that honourable? Maybe it is in the right circumstances. And the same question applies to Irish republicanism and also with the case with, with the British Army, although they have an official presence there, they're equally involved in violence and feel absolutely entitled to, 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 um, to engage in that way. That's what an army is. The, the IRA see themselves as a legitimate army fighting a legitimate cause. And, and how is it that they can find glory and honour in that, that horror? That, that's the question for me. And you have a, um, quite a sinister, you evoke what it is like to be turned against your own people and how you get drawn in. There's one particular character who ends up being putting herself in debt to the, to the local police and ends up being dragged into being an yeah. informer. So it's not all about the IRA. It's really not. That character was very important to me for two reasons. I call her Nellie in the book. She's a rough equivalent to Helen in, in that she's the wife of one of the IRA men who ends up working as an informer and then separating herself from her background and, and going to, at least trying to get herself off to England. Uh, on the one hand, I wanted to give a sense of the wider world around, outside the, the actual people involved in the conflict. But secondly, having, having decided that I wanted to get to that point with that Nellie slash Helen character, I started a how do, how do I have a character who is the wife of an IRA man 
and ends up as an informer. That is absolutely a, a, almost impossible to square. So uh, purely as an exercise, as a writer, I started writing my way into that. I think let's start way back when she's young and write my way into that situation, see if I can find a plausible... I'll often do that if I find myself in a corner. I'll just write my way out of it and then use what I need to. But that story took on a life of its own. And in the end, I thought, I'm putting that all in. Her whole story... She's a going, great character. Well, it, 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 there's nothing... There's so little about Helen in the Iliad that I, that was another reason I wanted to do it because it's such a heavily male story. As, 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 the, as it is, although there were female members of the IRA and indeed female, pl- plenty of female people involved on the British side as well... Um, uh, I, I, I really wanted to explore that that side uh, uh, in a lot more depth. Now, I want to open this out to both of you mm. because I am interested in why there is so much adaptation of classical stories around at the moment. There are two on the book along list, the, yours and um, The Water Cure. Why do you think it is? Uh, I've been thinking a lot about it and I don't know um, because I think there's been a lot around in the last couple of years and they seem to have increased and increased and this year in particular there are lots and I don't know what it is about why we look back for me I think it's that the idea of um, as Michael was saying the idea of taking these stories which are often very masculine and often have a lot of silenced characters in and how we can rewrite them in a more interesting way Um, I love the idea of you know taking this story and destroying it and using the debris to build it in a different way and see and I think also as a writer it's just such a fascinating exercise I found you know like how yeah as you were saying about Helen how can I make her do this I really want to see her in this way and you know playing around with things I think I found really enjoyable yeah yeah and I think for me personally it it gave me a structure and an authority. The trouble with writing about the Northern Ireland conflict for someone who grew up there is that you're either going to end up fictionalizing or dramatizing real incidents which is real people's pain that I have no no business exploiting or else you're going to end up making up incidents which never actually happened and it's quite a self-contained conflict although it happened over a long period of time the number of, of violent deaths is something in it's something around 3,000 um, any one of those incidents contributed to making the whole thing what it was if you go about making up things that never happened I find that quite queasy territory using an existing mythic structure kind of lets me off the hook and lets me say to the reader, look, this isn't real. I'm not telling you about real events in Northern Ireland. I'm telling you, I'm trying to find something about the nature of violent conflict and I'm using this story that we have available to us, that we all have available to us. And it's going to be fine. It'll still be there. Other people will do what they want with it. I just want today to take that story and... and a wrestle it in, into submission as far as I can to, to, for my purposes to allow me to say some things about this conflict that otherwise I would feel very uneasy with. Oedipus is not only a historical story, but it's a you know it's it's a part of analysis, psychoanalysis, hasn't it? I mean, it's so deeply entrenched in our in our culture. Is that part of what you were getting at with with that? Perhaps a little. I think certainly. Um, so I think it was Sally Vickers who tried to, you know, take Oedipus away from Freud and say, actually, this is about how can a mother leave her child? How can someone be in that um, frame of mind? Um, and I think that's the part I was really interested in, to create a character who could fit that, um, you know, who could actually maybe explainably leave her child and what, and then the repercussions of that. Mm. And the repercussions of that unnatural break between a child and a mother mm. is all chaos isn't it and, and anything can happen if you don't know I mean, the biggest taboos can get accidentally broken I, I, I mean there's an extraordinarily sort of uh, emotional logic in in that interpretation I think which comes out in the novel mm, yeah um it was fun to write I think I think you're right I think chaos I yeah I enjoyed the chaos chaos and cha- <laughs> you know yeah. and didn't they these classical stories both of both of these stories are about chaos partly. they are about chaos they're about wildness and that's the other appeal I, I, to tell you the truth I had spent a couple of years trying to write a novel about Northern Ireland about someone like me who came from a place like that and was coming back and trying to come to terms with what I'm going and I was boring myself stupid writing it so the poor reader <laughs> I had to chuck that out and find another way into it and I wanted to find a way to do exactly that to capture the wildness of it the energy of it the, the, the fury of it uh, and 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 um, and, and, and the chaos and, and take the, the reader on a sort of a, a wild ride through that, through those characters and through those events. 
Now, I'm interested what you're going to do next, because after having harnessed these <laughs> monsters of world literature, what, are you going to go and now return to sort of the Moomins or something? <laughs> What are you working on next? Are you working on something at the moment? I, I'm at the, I wouldn't say writing. I'm in the very early stages of, 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 of trying to think about mm-hmm. what I'll do next. I certainly, having written two novels now, which were quite a relatively dark, have a certain amount of violence in them, a, a certain amount of, of, of a large scope, I would like to write something much more um, in the domestic realm and a much more self-contained and maybe maybe that'll 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 be more a more optimistic or more um optimistic's not the right word but but I'm not I'm not that person maybe that's where I get it out in the books but I'm quite an up person I'm quite a happy person and I suppose I'd like to put a bit of that uh, especially in the last few years my life has been much more domestic and I suppose I usually find what I'm writing is dragging a few years behind where I am in my life, but maybe it's time for me to, to catch up with that. Well, maybe it's something things. to do with being the father of a very small child, and so all this rage about being kept awake night after night is coming what, out in the, your the, writing. We, we did. We had a baby who wasn't <laughs> sleeping very well through a large chunk of the of the the, uh, the the writing of this novel. So someone did say to me early on, "It's quite so dreamlike, isn't it?" Nice. Well, funny that because a lot of it a lot of it was written when I hadn't had very much sleep. <laughs> Daisy. <laughs> Um, so I am working on a horror novel at the moment, which I'm really enjoying. And I think, yeah, it was interesting after a retelling because obviously the thing you have when you enter into working with the retelling is you have the structure already there. But equally with horror novels, you have all these all these kind of markers and pointers. I'm really, yeah, I'm really, really enjoying it. And I'm it's scaring me. So hopefully it will scare everyone. Will you go back to short stories? <laughs> um, yeah, I always work on short stories. Being a child of the creative writing course, short stories was where I started. Um, and I can't get enough of short stories. Thank you very much, both of you. That was Claire Armidstead talking to Daisy Johnson and Michael Hughes. Country is published by John Murray, and Everything Under is published by Jonathan Cape. Next week, the mathematician Dr Eugenia Cheng comes into the studio to talk about logic and how mathematical principles can be applied to our everyday thinking. Meanwhile, you can subscribe and review us on all of your favourite podcatchers and join the discussion on Twitter by leaving a comment on the podcast page or emailing us on bookspodcast at theguardian.com. But for now, from me, Sean Kane, and our producer, Stuart Silver, goodbye and thank you for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. 